All right, we are ready for Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. If you're following the itinerary on the website, uh, for reasons we mentioned last week, we're just a little out of sync with that. But we are in sync with the workbook if you're following in the workbook. So anyway, we are at 24 through 27. We pick up with 28 next time. Your itinerary says we pick up with 29, but we'll be picking up with 28 and going through 32. Um, just a little note on the handout, uh, the additional handout on the very last thing, watch for the Messianic sections, list that. Uh, they're not the last thing we'll deal with, so we're, as we deal with that, there'll be about three sections or more, depending on whether you take a whole chapter or you're taking two sections of a chapter, how many you'll list, but I'll call the Messianic sections out as we go along. Chapters 24 to 27 begins a new thought in the outline that we have been looking at each time. We have considered in the first major section two of those subsections already. We've looked at prophecy against Judah and Jerusalem, then we've looked at this nations section that we've talked about two or three times, and that is prophecy against the nations. We're ready for 24 to 27, which deals with world judgment and deliverance of God's people. This is heavily messianic here, but at the same time, this serves as a summary, basically, of what we have in chapters 13 through um, 13 through 23. Those chapters, 13 to 23, are summarized right here in 14 through, I mean, 24 through 27. Now, what's the distinction and the difference? The previous chapters deal with specifics. That is, they deal with the nation specifically. For example, Egypt will be addressed. Uh, the nation of Assyria will be addressed, Syria will be addressed, Babylon will be addressed. So the nations are dealt with specifically, wherein these chapters deal with the nations in general terms and deals more with the problem at hand, that is the problem of sin is what brought them down. And that's what we're going to see in this section of 24 uh, through 27. So we get all that in one, one study tonight, and then next week we start into the woes against the sin uh, of the people. We're back to Judah again. And so that gets a little closer to home, at least in our study. So we're talking about world judgment and deliverance of God's people. Now, three things that we're going to focus on in our study tonight. Call it world judgments and woes. Chapter 24 focuses on sin is the reason for the judgment. And again, it's taking what we've already considered in the nation section and just kind of backs up and gives an overview and said, okay, here's the reason Here's the reason that God dealt with Syria, Assyria, Egypt, Edom, etc., is because of their sin. So the principle here applies to all of these nations that are going to fall, including Judah. And then in 25 and 26 is a section of four songs. Reminds us of Exodus 15, part of it at least does. And then chapter 27 sets to itself, dealing with the destruction of the nations and the remnant, uh, the restoration of the remnant. Now, part of the difficulty, this is a difficult section from this vantage point, and this is the nature of the prophets. I didn't write this, so I, I'm not to blame for this. But the prophet will often talk about the present, jump to the extreme future, that is the Messiah, and back to the present, and then back to the Messiah. And you say, well, that gets confusing. I don't want to do about that except to point out this deals with the present, and this deals with the Messiah. And we'll tell why that ha takes place uh, in, in just a few moments. So let's start with chapter 24 now. Chapter 24 deals with 
Sin is the reason for the judgment. Now here's something I'm learning. We don't have a great deal of time at the end of these studies to list practical lessons as I like to do. Um, but here, here's a couple of things that I'm learning. Uh, practical before we even get into the role of the chapter. Uh, having already done a study of chapter, uh, of chapter 24 as you have done, you already know that this is the conclusion we're going to get to. And that is what applies to these nations applies to us. That is, sin is the reason that we are doomed or destroyed. If you lose your soul, it's because of sin in your life. It's not because you're incapable of living according to God's will. It's because you committed sin. And so that's a practical thing to learn. Secondly, I'm learning the value of repetition. If the Bible repeats over and over things like this nation fell because of sin, this nation fell because of sin, this nation fell because of sin, this nation fell, and you say, okay, I got it. These nations are falling. And then there's a whole section that says the reason these nations are falling is because of sin. There must be some value in repetition that God thinks we need to hear it again and again and again and then maybe even again. So those two lessons we learn as we get into chapter 24. Here's what happens here. The, the sin is being the reason. The point, verses 1 to 3, is that no one is exempt. No one is exempt. Let's get that first, and then we'll talk about the reason for it is sin. Um, so the prophet begins here, focusing in chapter 24 again on the cause or the reason. And he gets to that starting at verse 4. But here's the point, no one is exempt. And we see this again at verse 18 a little bit later. But he said, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. This is kind of a summary, again, having, if, keeping 13 to 23 in, in mind and the focus. We're kind of gazing back at that section. That the Lord makes the earth empty, makes it waste. Uh, he scatters abroad the inhabitants. And then notice the list of the people here. And I have a question in the handout about this. And he said, as it is with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so is the master, as with the maid, so is the mistress, as with the buyer, so is with the seller, as with the lender, so is the borrower and the creditor and the debtor. And you say, well, what's the significance of those people? I don't think each one of those stands for something like, what does the creditor refer to and what does the debtor refer to? Do they symbolize something? I think he's saying that no class of people are exempt. Creditors are not exempt. The debtors are not exempt. The priests are not exempt. Uh, the maid and the mistress and the buyer and the seller. So there's not a class of people that you would say, well, these are exempt, or this nation that has these people within that nation, they're exempt. The point is, none are going to escape. That's all we want to see. Now, we're going to see the same point. You might make a marginal or footnote uh, about that at, at verse eight, 18. Excuse me. We see that no one is going to escape. Now, there's a practical thing to learn in that. When the judgment day comes, nobody's going to escape. You're rich, you're poor, you're educated, uneducated, you're a member of the church, you're not a member of the church. If there is sin in our life, we're going to face judgment in the day of judgment. Now verse 3, the land will be entirely emptied and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this. Now this again is general and not a specific time because I think it's a summary of the nation's section. In other words, we can't say, okay, this, is, this nation fell in, in 761 or 721 or 7 whatever and uh, or 530 something and so this must be the time he's talking about in that it's a broad shotgun spectrum view then this is not specific at all it's just a general idea of judgment so that's the point whether you're priest or servant whoever it may be none are exempt four to six now the reason for it is sin and this is repeated over and over in every one of the prophets this is not a new thought the earth mourns and fades away uh the haughty of the people uh, of the earth languish 
And then notice the description, and you have a question in the outline about this. The, the earth has, has also defiled under its inhabitants. And we'll come back to that phrase in just a second. Because, and here's the three things they've done. Same, they're just the same, uh, the same thing repeated in a different way. They transgressed the laws, number one. They changed the ordinances, and they broke the everlasting covenant. Those are three statements that de define they rejected God, and they rejected his word. And so they broke the covenant. I won't come back to verse 5, but let's go ahead and get verse 6. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate, and the earth is burned and few are left. In other words, this is widespread destruction and very few left. Now you notice some of the nations we talked about, there was utter destruction, and others there would be a remnant. And that's why he says very few are left. Some cases there were remnants left. Now let's go back to verse 5. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. We hear a lot, and this is not a political statement, this is a biblical statement, but you hear a lot about saving the earth and about destroying the earth, and what people are talking about is polluting the earth and, and uh, the emissions that we put off is going to destroy the earth. We've got to save the planet. What's interesting is the prophet talks about how the earth, notice the wording of verse 5, the earth is defiled. It is possible to destroy the earth in this sense. I don't think we can destroy the earth. God's going to destroy it when he's, when he's ready. Literally, that is the literal earth. But I, we can do damage. I don't deny that. But what's interesting is the prophet says the earth is defiled under its inhabitants. But what he focuses on, the earth is defiled when they transgress the laws, change the ordinances, and break the covenants. So I check hands with the left and tell them I think we are destroying the earth. And they agree with me and they think you're, you're on our side. But then they part ways when I tell them it's the things that you're doing that's, that's violating the laws of God, the transgressing of the laws of God, and changing the ordinance and breaking the covenant. That's what's defiling the earth. And then we part ways because they're not going to agree with me at all. Now let's start at verse 7. This is how bad the judgment is going to be. How bad is the judgment going to be? So let's get a picture here of how bad the judgment will be. There are six things that are mentioned here in this context telling us how bad the judgment's going to be. Let's see what they are. Here's the first. There will be no rejoicing and feasting, and merrymaking is going to come to an end. This is in verses 7 to 9. The new wine fails. These are symbols of festivities uh, that are not going to be appealing anymore. They're not going to appear anymore, nor are they going to be appealing. Uh, the new wine fails. Uh, the merry-hearted uh, uh, merry sigh. You know, the, those that were rejoicing before are now sighing. The noise of jubilant ends, the joy of the heart ceases. Uh, verse 9, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. So those who are drinking and those who are celebrating festivities, it's all going to come to an end. So this is how bad it's going to be. There's no rejoicing and feasting in Egypt after it falls. No, Assyria is not going to be rejoicing after it falls. Babylon is not going to rejoice after it falls. And I want to tell you, when this nation falls, there's not going to be much celebration either. It ain't going to happen either. And that's the point to be learned. Now, in verses uh, 10 through 12, there's going to be chaos and ruins. You take a nation like Assyria that thought it was mighty, the nation like Babylon that thought it was mighty, it comes utter chaos and utter ruins. Notice the wording now beginning at verse 10. The city of confusion, I'm reading from the New King James, the New American Standard says the city of chaos. And so instead of a city of order and structure, it's a city of chaos is broken down. In other words, there's ruin. Uh, there's crying for wine in the streets. I'm not reading every phrase of every verse, obviously. Uh, the mirth 
of the land is gone. Verse 12, in the city desolation is left and the gate is stricken with destruction. So it's a picture, what's, what, when you look around in all these nations, look at the major cities, ruin and utter chaos. The picture of war. Uh, start at verse 13, only a remnant's going to be spared. It's not widespread sparing of people and only a few destroyed. The majority is destroyed and only a few are left. Look, notice beginning at verse 13. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, like the shaking of an olive tree or the gleaning of the grapes. As you gather the grapes and shake the olive tree, what happens? Well, there's only going to be a few that are left behind. You get most of the grapes, you get most of the olives, only a few are left behind. Uh, they shall, uh, amid verse 14, shall lift up the voice and they shall sing. In other words, they cry, uh, cry aloud and they glorify God is the point that I want you to see. They're glorifying God because I'm praising God for the sparing of the remnant. Notice the praise at verse 15. The name of the Lord of hosts of Israel, uh, they glorify the Lord at the, dawning of, at the dawning light in the name of the Lord of the host of the coastlands of the sea. And they're shouting such things as glory to the righteous. Uh, come back to verse 16, an interesting phrase there. But what's going on is they're singing and praising for the sparing of that remnant that we saw in verse 13. So when the remnant spared, then there's praising God for this remnant. Again, this is a summary of what's going on among the nations. Now let's go to verse 16 now. Here's an interesting phrase. Is, this seems to be a, a reaction of the people of God. Some say it was the reaction of the prophet, but the prophet seems to be presenting to us a song that the people would sing. So attribute it to Isaiah, if you wish, or attribute it to the nation as a whole, I think may be better, or the righteous as a whole. That the righteous are going to say, in the middle of this, I am ruined, ruined, woe is me. Now that's interesting to me. That here's all this celebration, look at all the chaos and the ruin, and then there's this celebration concerning the sparing of the remnant. And the righteous cry out, I am ruined, ruined, woe is me. What's that say? I quote from John Humphreys here in his work and his commentary on the book of Isaiah. He said, the faithful child of God will experience peace in the Lord, but continue to face tribulation in the world. I say amen to that. In other words, this is a picture. Just because you're enjoying a relationship in the Lord and there's a reason for rejoicing, doesn't remove all tribulation and problems and trials and suffering. Sometimes we wonder, what, why am I suffering when I'm supposed to be doing what's right? And it seems like I'm doing the will of God and God's blessing me on the one hand, but it seems like I suffer on the other hand. So did the people of the Old Testament. Uh, I like what he says. The faithful child of God will experience peace in the Lord, uh, but continue to face tribulation. In spite of this peace in the Lord, I am ruined, ruined, woe is me. The righteous are overtaken with sorrow the treacherous dealers, that's the enemy nations that were so powerful, have dealt treacherously. Indeed, treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. That's the, the overwhelming of sorrow of I am ruined, woe is me. So a nation falls and then another nation comes up. And we saw that in 13 to 23. Assyria came up in power and I am ruined, the people of God would say. Well, then they fall and they rejoice at that. But then here Babylon rises up. I'm ruined, woe is me. So then Babylon falls and then Persia rises. Now, there's always going to be oppression. There's always going to be opposition. Now let's start at verse 17 now. And fear comes on the people and the people flee. 
And again, this is a general picture. As God brings judgment on the nations, that some of the people try to flee from that. But here we come back to this point I said we'd come back to, and that is none are going to escape. It said fear and the pit, and the, and the uh, let me start over verse 17. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, inhabitants of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of fear shall fall into the pit. I Means he's not going to really escape. And the one who comes up from the midst of the pit will be caught in the snare. In other words, there's no escape. The one running from, from what he's fearing of the enemy nation falls into the pit. If he gets out of the pit, there's a snare catching him. He's not going to escape. And that's the, that's the point we saw back at verse 3, that none are going to escape. Now, let's get verse, down through verse 20, and then we'll finish this chapter rather quickly here. Notice the foundations of the earth are shaken. God dealing with the nations. That's an interesting phrase there. You might underline that. God dealing with the nations is like God shaking the earth. Uh, you think about that. When things like, seem like they're out of control, we're about to see in the next section, 20 to 23, that... Uh, Things are out of control, and we're going to see God's in control. God can literally take the earth and shake it, but it's going to be like when, when God deals with nations, it's like God takes the earth and he just gives it a good shaking. And uh, he did that with Babylon, with Assyria, with Syria, Egypt, and Edom, and on down the line. All right. Now let's start at verse 21. Oh, back to verse 20. We've got to mention this. That the earth shall, shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. That is, when God shakes it, it reels like a drunkard back and forth. And shall totter like a hut. Uh, and the transgression shall be heavy upon it. And it will fall and not rise again. When God gets through with the nations, God's done with them. And they're not going uh, to recover. So the fall of the nations is compared to a drunk man who falls down and he can't get back up. That's the idea. God shakes them and they fall and they're over. And they're done. Now let's get 21 to 23. Through all of this, God is in control and will gather his prisoners and punish them. Who's his prisoners? Those that have sinned. And so again, we're focusing, we'll come back and get a summary of this section in just a second. But look at verse 21. It shall come to pass that the Lord will punish on high the, the host of exalted ones. So the Lord's going to, there's two things I want you to see here. And I think we've got a question about that. What do I learn from, from this section here, what point is being made? I think that's the little uh, uh, diamond-shaped box at the bottom. Two points to be learned from 21 to 23. Here they are. Number one is that, that uh, God's going to punish. Number one. And then he'll gather his prisoners together and will shut the prison door and they, and they will be punished. All right, here's the second thing. Is it verse 23? The Lord of hosts will reign. The Lord is in control. And the third thing we might mention, that's not part of that, what's in that box, but here's the third thing I want you to see here, and you might underline, because we're going to make use of this later in the next chapter, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his holy elders. You might underline Mount Zion. That's going to come, become very helpful a little bit later in chapter 25. So what have we just seen in chapter 24? Sin is the reason for the overthrow of the nation. So this not only summarizes what we're about to see in 24 to 27, it summarizes what we just saw in 13 to 23. And that is God will overthrow the nations. It's their own pride and their own sin that, that causes that. Now, here's something practical here um, that we need to understand. God's still in control of the nations, and God's still going to punish the nations. Uh, I have no reason not to conclude if God's still rules in the kingdoms of men, he brings nations down. 
That being the case, do you ever feel like things are in chaos and you wish something could be done? I wish something could be done to deal with Russia. I wish something could be done to deal with China and how they, they, they cheat and how they've done what they've done. I wish something could be done to deal with uh, Iran and whatever the nation may be of the hour. It may be 10 years from now, different nations that are in power and that are threats. And so what I learned from this section is, just don't worry about that. God's going to take care of that. God's going to take care of Putin and his boys. God's going to take care of uh, Biden and his boys. God's going to take care of everybody and his boys. Is, uh, to use Bard's terminology from Homer Haley, as he would deal with the prophets. God's going to deal with the nations in time, and he'll take care of them. And uh, they, will, uh, they will be dealt with. Now, that's what we saw in chapter 24. Now, there's four songs in chapters 25 and 26. And uh, what I want us to focus on now is the point of these songs, each one of these, and that's part of your handout to, to deal with. Uh, these songs are, deal with praise to God for the victory and the judgment over the nations. That's a summary of all four of the songs uh, that remind us, as Robinson tells us, uh, as I quote him in the workbook of the song in Exodus 15. All right, let's take these, each one of these songs. The first one, verses 1 to 5, deals with the song of praise for God's power and mercy. So let's see what happens in this song. Um, the song of praise for God's power. So God's being praised. Now, um, he starts off with, I will praise your name. You are God and I'll exalt you. I will praise your name. And notice what he's being praised for. Here's the first. There are four things in this this short song, it only has five verses, is your counsels of old, your faithfulness and truth. So God is being praised for his faithfulness. Now, if we don't get any further, what I'm seeing is God's being praised. The faithfulness of God is seen when God deals with the nations. And I, you may be getting tired of hearing this, but, but when I've taught the prophets, nearly every time we come to the nation section, Somebody, at least in the lower grades, will ask the question, isn't this the same thing over and over every week? Why do we have to deal with this? I thought we we're supposed to be dealing with like Judah or Israel, and we're dealing with Egypt, and who cares about Egypt? Who cares about Edom? Who cares about? Why do we need to see that? I'll tell you why we need to see it is because this verse, and this verse, if that's the only verse we had, tells us we saw the faithfulness of God in that when he dealt with those nations. And so God's praised for that. Here's the second thing. His power is mentioned in verses 2 and 3. That you have made a city ruin, that is you, God, you're the one who did it, a fortified city a ruin. And it's not hard to take a city and ruin, turn it to ruins if it's not fortified. But a fortified city God could ruin. His power is what's being emphasized. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of a terrible nations will fear you. So the mighty of other nations are going to turn and fear you because of your power. That's the point of verses 2 and 3. So we're praising God for his faithfulness, for his power. Here's a third thing. Here's a third thing. He could destroy nations is the, the power that we saw. The third thing is he creates fear. Look at verse 3. He creates fear, which we've already mentioned, that God's actions call for a reaction of fear. And a fourth thing that we mention is at verse 4, and that is he has mercy. The same God that has the power and brings down nations also has, has power and, uh, and uh, our mercy for the poor. And I, I shouldn't use the word power. He has mercy for the poor and for the needy. So notice that at verse 4. Uh, 
You have been a strength to the poor and a strength to the needy. Now, how is that pictured? Well, it's like a refuge in the time of storm. Or it's like this cloud. Look at verse 5. As heat in the shadow of a cloud. As a cloud drives the heat away. You think of a day when we have 100 degree weather and a big dark cloud comes over and hides the heat from us. So God hides uh, danger from us. He is our refuge. He takes care of those who are in need. He takes care of those who are poor. He's a refuge in the time of a storm. So now let's move on to the second song. So that's the song. So what's that point of that song? God is praised for his faithfulness and his power and his mercy. And you say, well, what's that got to do? Why is that inserted here? That was seen in his dealing with the nations. It was seen as he dealt with the nations. All right. Now then. Let's go to chapter uh, 25, beginning at verse 6. There is a song of rejoicing for the feast on Mount Zion. And you say, well, I'm looking at verse 6, 7, and 8, and I don't see Mount Zion. You just did a moment ago at chapter 24 and in verse 23. Now, on this mountain, he just mentioned Mount Zion. That's how I know it's Mount Zion. Now, this is the first of our messianic sections tonight. Um, on this mountain, what, what do we see? Well, in this song, this reminds us of some things like we saw over in Isaiah 2 and seems to be mess messianic. Um, let's see what we've got. That on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people. This is inviting both Jews and Gentiles are coming in. And a feast of, ch of choice pieces and the feast of wine on the lees. This is wine that has aged and on the dregs or the lees uh, or the sediment, that's what the lees has reference to, and well-refined wine. In other words, this is uh, aged wine. And this is not in a discussion of is, is wine good or bad for you. It's just a picture of the, the best of the feast of the wine and the best meat, etc. So here's a spiritual feast. And verse 7, he'll destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over the people, the veil that is spread over the nations. What is that? That probably, as I put in the footnote in your workbook, refers to the ignorance of God and the truth that spread over the nations, just like a veil would hide one's appearance. So there's a veil put over the nations that don't know anything about God. They can't see God. But in the kingdom, God removes that veil. In other words, those who come to the kingdom of God, the veil is gone. This is messianic. Uh, now, this is part of what makes this difficult. You see, he just dealt with the present circumstance and jumped to the far future of the Messiah. And he's going to come back, and he's going to go back, and he's going to come back, and he's going to go back. So I warned you ahead of time. We're jumping back and forth. That's what the prophet does. That's the nature of the prophecy. Now, um, at verse 8, let's get verse 8, and then we move on to the third song. He will swallow up death. Uh, forever. Uh, and so it's just talking about the spiritual blessings in the Messiah, that he's going to swallow up death. Uh, there is a rich spiritual feast, like eat, drinking the best of wine and the choicest of meats, and the veil is gone. This is the day of the Messiah. And so God is being praised. But this is in light of God dealing with the nations. These nations are allowed to come to the kingdom of God. So there's the rejoicing in the feast on Mount Zion. So what's the point of that, that song, if you're looking for that to fill out? I would summarize that song as praising God for the, the future kingdom, praising God for the, the, uh, 
the richest blessings in the kingdom of the Messiah. <coughs> now let's talk about, uh, let, me, let me pause just for a moment before we go any further. To remind you of this principle we've talked about already, but when I say already, not tonight, but uh, in the second lesson, I think it was, and a time or two after that. This is the nature of how the prophet operates when he jumps from one to the other at this jumping back and forth. What the prophet will do is he'll paint a dark picture of the sin of the nation of Judah or Israel, or as in this context, the sin of the nations, plural. And it's a picture of sin and failure. And growing out of that dark background, he talks about a brighter future through the Messiah. That's what he just did. 13 to 23, here's the dark nation, nations. Growing out of that, we have a brighter future through the Messiah. We just saw that in the second song. All right, let's go to the third song now. Uh, the longest of the songs is going to be found in the fourth song. So um, so let's talk about the, uh, the third song now. In 25, beginning at verse 9 through verse 12, here is a song that rejoices because of salvation that God's power promises. And this starts at verse 9 and goes through verse, verse 12. And it shall be in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. I'll say more about waiting on God uh, in chapter 26, but basically it has to do with trusting in God. Um, that we waited on God. This is the Lord. We waited on him. And then notice at verse 10, and we're glad and rejoicing in his salvation. That's the, the thing I was looking for and missed it. Look at verse, uh, verse 9. We, we waited on the Lord. In other words, we trusted in the Lord, and salvation comes through the Lord. That's where the tr salvation comes from. It wasn't in these nations. So here's one of the things just learned in that. I think that alludes to the fact that trusting in any nation for the salvation, which Judah did and Israel did too, was useless because the nations all fell. And we saw that in 13 to 23. All right? With that in mind, he goes on to verse, verse 10, that Moab shall be trampled down. I don't think now he's getting specific about a nation, but just as Moab, I think that stands for the nations. And I think most commentators would, would attest to that, that that's probably the case here. It doesn't seem to fit in this general context. To, I want to focus in on Moab, but seemingly Moab stands for the nations. Uh, that have rejected God. Now notice that he praises God for salvation. Now in 10 to 12, the power that he demonstrated over the nations is, is what we see in 10 through 12. That he trampled Moab, just like trampling over uh, straw. Uh, he spread his, out his hands in the midst as one who swims spreads out his hands. So in other words, God just spread out his hands on the nations and God takes the nations down. Uh, and the fortress of the, fort, uh, of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down low. In other words, God's power is seen. So what do we, what's the point of the, of, the, of, of the third song? That God, salvation comes through God, deliverance comes through God because of God's power. So it focuses on God's power. So we praise God for his faithfulness and his power and his mercy, and the, we're again praising him for his power. So you say, well, what's, what's the point of the nations that we've been talking about? I'm getting tired of dealing with the nations. You see God's power. I'm not getting tired of seeing God's power, are you? I'm not tired of seeing more demonstration of his power. So every nation that fell, I see a demonstration of his power. That if he can take down Babylon, he can deal with my problems. If he can take down Babylon, he can answer my prayers. If he can take down Babylon, he can save me from my sins, etc. 
I'm learning something about the power of God. And so if we have 20 more chapters on the nations, we need to study and we're going to learn about the power of God. That's what these songs are saying. All right. Now let's talk about a strong city now, the song for a strong city, and this is chapter 26. So let's go to chapter 26 and talk about this, um, this song for a strong city. Now, this is also a messianic section. And um, this seems to be talking about Jerusalem. And it seems to be spiritual Israel. And if that assumption that I just made is true, and he's not talking about physical, literal Jerusalem, then this is messianic. And so I've marked it in my Bible as messianic. You get through reading and studying, you say, I don't think it is, then don't mark it as messianic. Uh, but then we've got some things to grapple with here. So let's, we've, got, we've got something to cover here. And I want to see if we can make it through this in chapter 27. So let's talk about this um, as if it's messianic. Jerusalem is that strong city. Now here's what he says about that. There is deliverance for those who put their confidence in the Lord. Now remember the whole point of the book is here was a nation that was putting their confidence in other nations rather than in the Lord. So in spiritual Israel, the same is true. Confidence has to be in the Lord. So let's see what he says. We won't get every verse. We, we have a strong city. I'm at, in the middle of verse 1. Uh, open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps truth, may enter in. Who, who's he talking about the righteous nation? You will keep him perfect in peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now that's a key phrase. He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. So what's the point? The point is God provides deliverance for those who put their trust in him. And you say, well, I'd like to see that time and that period so I could understand that. You're in it. You're in that spiritual Jerusalem. You're in the church. So you know what it's like. You know what that means. All right, now beginning at verse 5, he says God will bring down the lofty. Now he, and this is in light of the nations. How, how do I know God brings down the lofty? Chapter 13 through 23, he brought down the lofty nations. He'll bring down the lofty in our day and time too. So he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays low. Uh, and uh, he lays it low to the ground. That's enough to get our point. What, what God do with the mighty, arrogant Babylon? He brought it down to the ground. Well, in the spiritual Jerusalem, no one who is lofty, uh, lofty and, and, and haughty is going to be allowed. He brings down the lofty. Now, the righteous and the wicked are contrasted here in 7 through 11. If you're copying this, we're going to come back. Let's see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked in 7 through 11. You've got a, um, a question about that, two boxes about that in the handout. Let's see what they are. In verse 7, he says that the way of the just is uprightness. In other words, they follow the, the righteous follow the path of uprightness. And what else do they do? Look at verse 8. They waited for the Lord. That is, they put their trust in the Lord. Back up at verse 2 uh, and three or verse, yeah, verse 3, they put their trust in him. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. You, you, you put your trust in the Lord and you don't run ahead of him and handle things, matters with your own hands. In other words, when you decide you're going to handle things your way, uh, the way you like, you're running ahead of the Lord and you're not waiting on the Lord. 
Waiting on the Lord means you trust the Lord. You trust his way. You trust his system. You trust his instructions. You think they'll work. It may not look like it works, but you, it'll work. And so he, he waits on the Lord. And in verse 9, he, he seeks you early. It's the idea of seeking him while there is yet night, while I don't have a clear vision of what's going on. While it's still night and before the, the light is clear, I trust and I seek the Lord before I have a clear vision of, of exactly how things are going to be. Do, do you seek the Lord early? What does that mean? Well, when you don't have a clear vision of how things are going to turn out, do you follow the Lord's directions and just trust it's going to be all right? When the Lord says, do this, and that may save the sinner, do you trust the Lord or do you try to do it your own way? Do you trust the Lord and do you seek him early? All right. Let's go to verse 9. They learn righteousness. Now, this is interesting. At the end of verse 9, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So what I know about the righteous, they follow the path of the upright, they wait on the Lord, seek the Lord, and they learn righteousness. Now, the wicked, now this is quite interesting at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Let grace be shown. Mark, get ready to read verse 10 in just a moment on the ESV. And somebody that's got a Bible out, find the New American Standard 95 on verse 10. I want, to, I want us to read that. Um, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet let, uh, he will not learn righteousness. Now, the wording of the king, the reason I want to read these other translations, it's, it sounds like, let him, at verse 10, let grace be shown to the wicked. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, if we show grace to the wicked, ESV, verse 10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. New American Standard 95. Who's got that? Anybody got it? You're right there. All right. Though he has shown favor, he doesn't learn righteousness. Let's get the point. What's he saying? What's he saying? What he's saying is, if, if, um, if, if we show favor to the wicked, he will ignore that favor and, and will never learn righteousness. See the point he's making? Again, Mark, read that again. Get, I locked the ESV. So if, if the conduct of the wicked is ignored and nothing is said or done concerning his wickedness, he never learns righteousness. So you think about that with your children. If they're doing wickedness and you never correct them, they never learn to do right. In the church, if people are undisciplined, they never learn to do right. If in our families there's someone living ungodly and we ignore that, they never learn to do right. You say, that'll preach. Yes, it does, and it's right here in the text. That's a Bible point. They never learn righteousness when their sin is ignored. And he said, the wicked, they don't learn. Not like the righteous. Verse 10, they deal unjustly. Verse 10, they do not behold the majesty of God. They seek the Lord over here, but they do not behold the majesty of God. And now verse 11 is quite interesting to me. Then uh, uh, said, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. Now his hand is lifted up in the sense of judgment and they're not alarmed. That's the point. All right, now let's go back to our... our uh, song. Now that's 7 through 11. God's power and rule over the nations is seen in 12 to 15. The Lord will establish peace. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to skip down because I want to get to another point. Um, 
Therefore, I'm reading at verse 14, you have punished and destroyed them. He rules over the nations, but yet he, uh, his power is seen. You are glorified, verse 15. Now, verse 16, trouble brings the people, God's people, to the Lord. Here, here's the point at verse, verse 16. Lord, in trouble we have visited you. What's the point? Trouble creates patience. Trouble drives people to the Lord. Sometimes you wonder, why does the Lord let me go through this problem? It may be he's driving you back to himself. And that's part of the point that's found out here. Now, um, let's drop down to verse 19. The dead shall come to life at verse 19. What's that talking about? I'm not sure. Here's three possibilities. The last is the one I think makes more sense. Jackson says in his little commentary that this may refer to the resurrection of the righteous cause in the day of the Messiah. Okay, that makes sense. Some think it may have reference to the literal bodily resurrection. I'm not sure that fit, nor the, is that the argument. Uh, Humphrey suggests that it's a figurative standing for the righteous experiencing life under the Messiah. And it's like unto a resurrection. It's more figurative. Uh, that seems to make sense to me. That he's, he's alluding to the days of the Messiah and... Uh, the dead shall come to life, that is, they experience spiritual life under the Messiah. Now, verses 20 and 21, before we go to the last thing, uh, is just simply the protection and care that God gives. God covers them, and there's protection. So what is the point of this song? The point of this song is that God's taking care of his people. There is time of rejoicing. There is salvation in the Messiah, etc. It's messianic. That song points to that brighter future. Now let's quickly get chapter 27, our time is about gone, so quickly chapter 27, what's it about? The destruction of the nation and the restoration of the remnant. Now what happens in this, uh, in chapter 27, is you have this jumping back and forth. So I want to hit the messianic sections. Uh, the new vineyard, he talks about the destruction of the nations, I'm going to skip that because that's what we've been dealing with. But here's the restoration of Israel. Now he points to the future. And so here's this back and forth. In, in the new vineyard, he's talking about, that's messianic, I'm convinced. And talking about this new vineyard, how things will be so great with the new vineyard, and the vineyard will not fail, the vineyard will not fall, etc. And so there's, there's this festivity in the, under the Messiah. All right, he point, he's jumped over to the future in the days of the Messiah. Now he comes back. Israel's punishment and destruction is, is not complete. And he's talking about they're going into captivity. Uh, they were taken away, verse 9, that's they were covered uh, with iniquity, and then they were cleansed, etc. And then he comes back, beginning at verse 10 and 11, and he talks about how sinful Israel uh, will be forsaken. So he talks about the present. And then he jumps back to the future in the last section, the gathering of Israel in 12 to 13 which is messianic. And I didn't want to fail to mention that that's messianic. So in chapter 27, you want to mark the verses 2 to 6 is messianic. You want to mark verses 12 and 13 is messianic. Uh, the gathering of Israel. Uh, look at verse 13. So shall it be in that day when the great trumpet is blown, then shall it be about the, the uh, they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria that are the outcast in the land of Egypt, and they will worship the Lord in the holy mount in Jerusalem. In other words, from all nations, doesn't matter whether they're from Egypt or Ephraim or wherever, they're going to come and worship God in the new Jerusalem. It's messianic. And so 
how, how can we interpret these as messianic in light of the New Testament? In light of the New Testament revelation, this seems to be talking about the day of the Messiah. So that's not uncommon in the prophets, and I just want you to, we're going to end on that note because our time is gone. That the prophet will talk about the dark picture, then jump over to the Messiah, come back to the dark picture of the present, go back to the brighter day of the Messiah, come back to the dark picture, back to the brighter day of the Messiah. And he does that. Chapter 27 is a classic illustration of that. And so he talks about the bright future, comes back to the present, sections two and three, and back to the future in number four. That's chapters 24 to 27, kind of a general summary of chapters 13 to 23. So we're going to shift gears next time. If you're tired of the nations, let's go back to the nation of Judah and see what's going on there. We'll start there next week in chapter 28.